It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, that's especially the, the case uh, from uh, being being out ill last week, and so thank you for uh, Ben to for reading uh, the sermon I had previously prepared for uh, for here. But it is good to be here again with you all here. Um, we are going to be going beginning our, our or rebeginning our sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark uh, that we had taken a break over. Uh, through Advent and, and, and December, and here we are now in, in January. We're, we're coming back into studying the life, the ministry of, of the, Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And so this morning, we're finding ourselves uh, coming back in at the beginning of chapter 4. And this is beginning a chapter of some of his parables here, the, the stories that, that he, was, uh, he was telling to explain the nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, before we read... Uh, I want to pray also. I want to pray first for God's blessing upon this time of His Word, of us hearing, and of us being molded and formed by it. So let's pray. Lord God, this is uh, Your Word that we are hearing and receiving. This is Your Your Word that is going to be scattered out among us here, and we pray that. Your spirit would be breaking up our hearts to receive this word, that our hearts would be cultivated. Uh, we pray that the, the, the waters of your spirit would be, would be pouring forth here also uh, to nourish them, that the warmth of, your, of your, your, your beauty and grace in Jesus Christ would be uh, the sunlight to bring them into flourishing. We need it. Because apart from your word, apart from your grace, we are just dry, dusty, barren fields. So do your work this morning here. For Jesus' sake, we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. uh, This is the word of God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. 
the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. People tell stories for all sorts of reasons. People still tell stories to entertain, right? Who doesn't like a good, funny story? Or we tell scary stories around the campfire in the summertime. We also tell stories, though, at times to explain concepts, to teach. A good story can help to explain a complicated idea or a theory and bring it down to us in ways that we can understand. People also tell stories to impart wisdom, there's the classic cautionary tale, a story of, of, or stories of people who acted in certain ways or transgressed certain bounds, and then it tells of the consequences which followed. If you don't want to end up like that person, then don't do what they did. Or conversely, look how marvelously wonderful it turned out for that person for doing X thing. And people oftentimes read Jesus' parables in these ways. Some people read them for their humor and their clever ideas, seeing them very much as entertaining stories. And it's true, in the parables there are these clever twists and these absurd ideas in them, things that would have caused people to to get caught off guard, or even uh, the original hearers to chuckle for a little bit because it was so weird of an idea that Jesus had brought up. But more often, though, people who take seriously his parables are... Are, are more seriously, or than people who are looking at the parables, taking them more seriously than just as clever statements or entertaining stories, look at them, though, primarily as ways to explain something or to impart wisdom. Uh, they are stories which do reveal aspects of the kingdom of God. They explain some theological idea about the kingdom, what it is, how it grows, the ethics of the kingdom, its worth, its value. And there's something about imagery that sticks with us. And similarly, though, there are also, they also tell us about what it means to live in light of the kingdom. Now that it's here, what does it mean? What does it mean to have a life shaped by the kingdom or illuminated by the kingdom? If it grows in this way or it has this sort of value, then what does wisdom dictate? But there's another important element, though, that's often missed when considering Jesus' parables, which is also another reason why people sometimes tell stories. There's a story in the Old Testament. There's a time when Nathan the prophet came to King David after his adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband. And the prophet Nathan comes to King David with a story. And he tells a story about a wealthy man and a poor man. And the poor man's family only had one little lamb, and they loved this lamb so dearly. But the rich man, preparing a dinner for a friend, took and killed that poor man's lamb instead of finding one from his own flocks. And when King David heard this, he was incensed. Who is the man who have done, who's done such a thing? He deserves to die. And what does Nathan the prophet say? You are the man. <laughs> 
And then David knew what he did, and he was heartbroken when he saw his sin. Sometimes, stories can also be used to confront. And this is what Jesus accomplishes in his parables. He used stories to catch his listeners off guard and then confront them with the main point about the kingdom. Specifically, to confront our own expectations about the nature of the kingdom. To point out to it what it really is, its true nature, and how that rubs against our own natural preconceptions. Now, certainly there are parts in parables which explain the kingdom. They reveal the theological truths that form its basis, its, its ethics, how one gets into the kingdom. There are calls for wisdom in the, par- or in the parables, asking us if we really do value the kingdom as it's presented. And there are even these entertaining, strange, absurd moments in parables that Jesus used to divert the attention of the audience or to make us deeply question things. But all of those, though, are with the purpose of confronting us with reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. And as they confront, they demand that we look at ourselves and make an evaluation. They demand a response. This is what the kingdom is like. So what do you think? What will you do? How does this shift things for you? Because this is what the kingdom is really like. And so keep that in mind as we hear this parable here. Jesus is looking to confront his hearers. All of us who are hearing these words. Confrontation looks for a a response. And the response that he's looking for, that Jesus wants here, is the response about himself. What do you do with me, he says? What do you do with my kingdom? What do you do with my good news? What do, you, what do you hear as you listen and hear? What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of his kingdom that he is announcing and that he's brought in? There are really only two responses that you can meet him with. And that's belief or unbelief. There's no middle way. There's no third response that you can have. You can either hear what he says and receive it. Or you don't. It's one or the other. And that doesn't mean that you can't have any questions that are, are, un, are unresolved with it. Uh, an honest belief will reckon with that. You don't have to have it all figured out. But at the end of the day, despite your questions, do you believe him? Now at this point here in Mark, because we've been out of it for a little while, here's a reminder of what, we've been, what he's been dealing with. The response of those, the responses of the people that he came to minister to and their unbelief or their belief. We've seen in, in unbelief with his encounters with the religious leaders, some of whom went so far as to attribute his redeeming works to Satan himself. There's been unbelief in his family members. But there's also, though, been belief and positive reception by those who may not have understood everything about him, but they heard and they knew that he was true and good and beautiful and he was sent from God the Father and they received him with joy. And so with that in mind, we need to first look at the middle of this passage. Everything in the parable here revolves around verses 10 through 12. A better understanding these strange words, and maybe for some of us as we first hear it, maybe even these off-putting words, will allow us to better understand the parable. And these few verses here especially revolve around verse 12, which is a a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. They may see indeed but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And 
In Isaiah 6, the Lord had commissioned and sent the prophet Isaiah to go and to deliver his message of repentance and life to Israel as they faced imminent judgment due to their sins. It was knocking at the door. Except there was a problem. His people were blind and deaf to it all. They took more pride in their status as being called God's people than to listening to his word and allowing it to penetrate their hearts. And so these were God's words about Israel. Keep on hearing my word. Keep on seeing the signs that I've given you. But you won't hear. And you won't see. It's falling on deaf ears and blind eyes. You are too hardened to see. And if they did hear, if they did see, there was forgiveness. Turning in repentance would be the proof that they truly did see and they truly did hear. But their inability to hear wasn't Isaiah's fault. It wasn't the messenger's fault. It wasn't God's fault who gave the message. It was their own fault for failing to receive this word in a worthwhile manner. Their hearts were too hard to see and to hear the message for what it really was. And so Jesus' parable is based on Isaiah 6. In fact, it's even, you could consider it a dissertation in story form on Isaiah 6. Bringing it out of the Old Testament context from Israel and then delivering it fresh to these people, these New Testament Jews. Do you believe, he says? It's clear. Look who I am. Look what I've done. Hear my message of repentance and the good news of my kingdom. Keep on hearing and keep on seeing. But you just don't, do you? Because if you don't, though, you are missing out on what is clearly in front of you. And in myself, there's forgiveness and life. The beauty of the kingdom of God brought to you even right now. You could take this here, really, and apply it to all of Jesus' life and ministry. If you take seriously the testimony that we have of Jesus' life found in the scriptures, then you'll see in them that Jesus is the promised Savior. That he is the Son of God who came to forgive sins, to give life, and he did it all by his cross and empty tomb. That's the consistent story, the message of the Bible. But without, though, the ability to hear, without the ability to see, then everything will seem about him here will seem just like another story. And do you find him to be merely entertaining? Do you like his style? Do you like how he, he ruffled the feathers of the establishment? Is he a teacher who helps to explain life? Is he the bearer of wisdom and how to live a fuller, more fulfilling life? Well, no, here's the central question. Does Jesus confront you? Have you truly been confronted with who Jesus says he is? And when you listen to his words, does it challenge your thoughts about God and about yourself? And challenge them deep enough to bring a heartfelt response. Jesus pulled examples and elements from everyday life in his parables. And here it's seed and soil. Things that were well understood by an agrarian culture in that day. But are also easily understood by us. Because seeds and soil haven't changed. They act just the same today as they always have. And so let's think about that seed here. The seed part of the parable. I mean, have you ever considered, though, the wonder of a seed? Everything that is necessary for the life and growth of that particular plant is contained in that seed. 
It just needs the right conditions. It needs good soil. It needs enough water. It needs energy to start the processes. Light from the sun warming the soil in which the seed sits. And if you look at that seed, it might look dry or dead on the outside. But the inside of any seed is full of potential. I mean, who would think that just from one seed would spring a great harvest? Take a single seed of wheat. All right, one of the wheat kernels, which is dried and becomes a seed. And then that seed is put in the ground, it's planted, and up springs forth a plant that has an average of 22 new kernels per head. And then that, that wheat plant will have around five heads on it. Right? That's, a, that's over 100, all from one seed. Or corn, one kernel of, 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 of an ear of corn is planted and then upsprings a corn stalk which develops the new ears. And do you know how many ears are expected on, on or excuse me, how many kernels are expected on just one ear of corn? The average is 800. Consider that. From one kernel brings an abundance of 800 kernels and that's just on one ear. Your average corn stalk has between two and four. And so all that life, all that potential, it's hidden inside that seed. It's just waiting to burst forth to grow and to bear fruit. And what a beautiful image for the word of God. Right? The gospel of the kingdom of Jesus is that which is sown into the world, scattered in, onto human hearts. And it may not look like much from a cursory look. But like a seed, hidden within, there's the potential for Deep, incredible life to burst forth. In the seed of the word is contained the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that there is perfect forgiveness and righteousness and acceptance by God the Father because Jesus came to save sinners. It is a living word. It's not dead like a seed, but it's a word that's living and active and brings forth life. It testifies that Jesus is alive and he is reigning in righteousness even right now in this moment. The word brings forth life. It sprouts and as it germinates, it acts just like a seed. It begins to grow little roots which, grow, which drive downward into our hearts and our souls. And it implants itself in our lives and it begins to shoot up little sprouts and leaves which slowly grow and flourish. The barren fields of our hearts slowly become green and teeming with life. We can't forget this when we consider the word of God, the word of the kingdom here as seed. There's a deep mystery at work as the gospel goes forth. Just as there's a certain mystery as a seed sprouts. We may understand in theory how it works, but there's still all sorts of these mysterious powers at work and unseen to our eyes as that seed begins to sprout and grow. And when we're spreading the word and the gospel message of Jesus, it's a powerful word that's being sown and in it there is a deep potential for life to take root. And we don't really understand all the unseen powers of God at work to shake that seed into growth But the thing is, we don't need to. We just need to remember that we are sowing a word that brings forth life, even in the most barren of places, and trust that it will do its work. What is it that's needed for transformation? 
and, and spiritual awakening and growth. What is it that brings forth life? It's seed. It's the word of God, which is living and active and powerful. And it's what this place needs. It's what we need here at CVP. It's what Newberg needs. And if we want to see change, and if we want to change, and if we want to see God at work, we cannot forget the seed. We cannot forget the word of God and all of the powerful potential inside it as it bears witness to the reality of Jesus Christ who has come for us. But seed, though, it's not just enough to have seed. Soil is the context for seed to grow. It's where it takes root, it's, and it's where it's nourished. Now, so much depends upon the soil, the growth of the plant, the longevity of the plant, the size of the harvest. You can have the best seed, but if the soil is bad, or if it doesn't allow the seed to take root, then nothing happens. Where's the fruit? What's the fruit that's born from the, the seed of the word? It's the response. It's how the word is received. Because if that word is sown upon the right soil, then it will take root and it will bring forth a harvest. Jesus talks about four soils, which are really four hearts upon which the word of God here is sown. And the first is soil on the path. The soil on the path, which is really a hard heart. And when you walk along a path, it's the constant trotting that packs down the dirt. And then if you factor in rain... And with a little way for the water to soak into the dirt, it continues then to cure it into a hard pack that resists even the most stubborn of seeds. That's the first soil, the soil on the path. It's hard. The seed falls along the pathway and it just lies there because there's no way for it to penetrate. Because it just lies there, it's swept away very easily. The birds come and eat it. The wind blows it aside. Where Jesus says here with the words, Satan just sweeps it away because it never took any root in the first place. Now, is Satan to blame with this? No. Because why was it so easily brushed aside in the first place? Because the soil, because the heart was hard. Many times we consider a heart hardened like this to be someone who's so obstinate in their rebellion against the word or that the word just doesn't penetrate the stone-cold understanding that they have. And sometimes we think it's like the most arrogant atheist or the person who is so utterly unwilling to listen because of intellectual reasons. And that may be true. But could it be, though, that that's the exception? Because the hardened heart is also someone who just can't be bothered by what the word says or the spiritual realities around us. It's a life that's really quite simple, that's caught up with simplistic things by a life focused on sports and beer, by grades and seeking success, by Instagram and TikTok and the fear of missing out. Either way, it's all the same here. It says, I really don't have time for these matters about Jesus and the kingdom, and I really don't care much anyways, because it just doesn't seem very relevant or important to the way that I live. The hardened heart is tragic because it fails to see the relevancy of the word and the grand life that it offers. And it's willing to set it aside for something that's really quite worthless. But the second soil 
that Jesus talks about is rocky soil. It's rocky soil, which is really the shallow heart. The soil itself is as shallow as it forms a thin layer on top of a shelf of rock just below the surface. So that the soil warms easily and it's able to germinate that seed very quickly. But the roots, which are so important to the life of the plant, never have a chance to grow deep. So as the sun then continues to beat down upon that little seedling, it withers and it dies. Deep roots are necessary to stand the test of time. And the shallow roots lead to scorched faith in times of heat. The shallow heart receives the word with a great deal of enthusiasm, but it never takes deep root, and they remain near the surface. So that as soon as any heat is applied, heat which inevitably comes in the life of suffering that Jesus calls us to, or considers the radical demands of following Jesus, then it withers. Immediacy of response, quickness of growth, and enthusiasm isn't always a good indicator of lasting growth. A lasting and true faith that is firm has roots that are sunk deep, deep into the heart where the truth of Jesus can permeate into the the reaches of our lives. The third soil here is a thorn-ridden soil, which is a distracted heart. And here the seed lands upon some soil that also has some thorns and weeds that are also ready to sprout beneath from the, or sprout from the surface. And as the seed germinates and as it grows up, then so also do the thorns and the thistles. And the weeds end up choking out the good plants so that they bear no fruit. They're just empty stalks. And they're now about as good as the weeds were themselves. This is the distracted heart, the heart that is enamored by all the other cares and matters of the world that, present, or that prevents the word from flourishing and bearing fruit in one's life. On a Sunday morning, it hears the word of Christ proclaimed and gives assent to its truth, but by the afternoon, it's gone as the power of the word to bear fruit has been forgotten or it's been set aside in favor of other things that are valued more highly. The word is read Thought is given in the moment, but by the time the Bible's closed, it's all been forgotten as the day begins and our other desires for life grow up and they overshadow the growth of the word that we had in those brief moments. The word may be received, but is it truly valued over the prospect of worldly success? But Jesus has a fourth soil that he talks about, just good soil. It's the fertile heart, the soil that's been cultivated. It's healthy. It's deep. And as it receives the seed, then the seed flourishes and takes root so that it remains even in the heat and the wind. Its roots go deep so that it drinks from the groundwater and takes in the right nutrients. It flourishes. It brings forth an abundance of harvest. The seed bears fruit as, and all of its potential for life and growth is unlocked within the soil. When the word is received gladly with a cultivated heart, free of competing desires and care, this is what happens. It flourishes in faith and it bears fruit of the kingdom. So what's the purpose of the parables? Again, it's to confront us, to awaken us to a certain reality and elicit a response. And as you heard these four soils, what was your response? 
As we listen, did we first consider others and try to figure out what soils their hearts might be? Or did we examine our own selves and how we receive the word? What soil is our heart? What tendencies do we see in ourselves? See, our hearts are never fully the same in every corner. Just like a field, even a good field that's predominantly good soil still might have some rocky places or some shallow places or spots where the weeds are a problem or a spot that doesn't drain well and it's hard due to the runoff. I mean, if you're like me, I exhibit places in the field of my own heart that isn't always this uniform, good, fertile soil. I've received the word with great joy. It's my only hope. I will gladly profess that any day of the week. I need Jesus desperately. I need him more desperately than I know. But still, nonetheless, there are times where I functionally just can't be bothered by what the word says. Because there are other parts of life that just press in and they arise in competition. Or my own thoughts are drawn elsewhere to other matters. Things like recreation or, heart or house projects that occupy more of my time in that moment. Or admittedly even forgetting what I read in the word that very morning. Or even forgetting what I preached a few weeks ago. See, this parable needs to confront us over and over. Not only at the point that we have believed, if that's the case that we've believed. But as we continue to think, am I receiving the word with eagerness? Or are there aspects of how I hear and understand that are growing dull? Our hearts need constant tilling to receive the word, to have the hard ground broken up, the soil cultivated and turned over, and have those weeds just ripped out. Because when the word takes, uh, takes root and flourishes, it brings a harvest. And that's something else that we can't forget from this parable, that there is a harvest to be had, a sizable harvest And with a sizable difference, though, in the amount of the harvest. Some bore fruits 30 times, 60-fold, 100-fold. And that's none of those are an insignificant amount right there. And there's real fruit that the word will bring in your life if you receive it. And if you receive the the Jesus that it speaks of, it will flourish, it will bear fruit. But it may also bring a different amount of fruit in your life than in someone else's. And that may disappoint some of us because it's tempting to measure ourselves and our spirituality against others. And that includes the fruit that's being born. And it can lead us to despair. Am I really a Christian? Do I really believe? Because that person over there seems like they're, a, a, they're, they're the hundredfold fruit field. And I just don't see as much fruit in my life. But don't forget this, though. A lesser amount of fruit is still a harvest of fruit. And any fruit in your life is because the word of Christ has taken deep root inside of you. And some people experience not only rapid, but deep growth in the word. And the word bears incredible harvests in their lives. And they grow into these dynamos of the faith, or steadfast stalwarts in Christ. And their lives are visibly changed. And God uses them to continue sowing his seed and bringing an abundance of harvest into people's lives. And praise God for that fruit which his word bore. But meanwhile, others don't feel the same poles or desires for certain sins that they've struggled with in the past. 
Some people don't yell at their kids like they used to. A woman wakes up in the morning and her first thought isn't about killing herself. Praise God for that fruit which his word bore. It's all fruit. And it all came from the, from the same place. It came from the word of God, which bears witness of Jesus Christ who came for sinners and, for who, and who delivers us. The word bears fruit. Jesus and his spirit bring forth fruit. It doesn't matter what kind of fruit. Did it ever occur to us that it might be specific to a different field or to a certain field? That the fruit that you need, perhaps most growing in your life, is different than someone else's? Don't be discouraged if you don't seem to measure up against others and you feel like a failure. Be glad for one thing that there is fruit which has been born in your life. Because apart from the word and apart from the spirit of God at work in you, that would have never happened in the first place. And so the answer here is to keep on receiving that word. Let it dwell richly within you because that is where fruit is born. And if you do see all sorts of fruit in your life, remember in the first place where that came from. It didn't come from yourself. It came from the grace of God. Are you hearing clearly this morning? Are you seeing clearly? The word being sown here this morning is full of life because in it is the good news of Jesus himself, our only hope, the one who brings a kingdom of grace, not of our works, a kingdom founded upon his life and death, upon a cross and an empty tomb then, a kingdom received by faith, a faith that rests and receives upon him alone for salvation and in whom alone is a lasting and eternal fellowship with God. Parables are meant to confront us. Have you been confronted by this word? Is this how you see life? Is this something beautiful and to be received gladly? Or is it falling upon a hardened heart that just doesn't see or understand? A heart that's too preoccupied with other matters in life. It just doesn't see its relevancy or understand the demands of the life that Jesus calls us to. The word of Christ, the word of Christ Jesus himself, is so much more beautiful and more important than you or I could even know right now. And there's nothing else that could, we could hold in competition to it. And I pray that the Spirit would awaken us and would plow our hearts to receive these words of Jesus with gladness, and faith, and satisfaction. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we just simply pray that you would till our hearts. That you would cultivate them from any hardness that we have. That you would pull out any weeds that we have that you would deepen the soil in our lives, in our hearts, so that we might be more fit to receive this word with eagerness and to see it for what it truly is, the words of life, because in it is Jesus Christ whom we so desperately need. There is grace and there is mercy for us who are desperate. And so do not allow us to remain in our stubborn unbelief, no matter what form that it might take, no matter how big, whether it's the characteristic of our whole life, or if there are even just 
pockets of unbelief in various areas of our, our inner life. No matter what shape it takes, no matter the amount that it takes, please do not allow that to remain. And instead then, make us fit for your word to flourish within our hearts. We pray that even we, that you would remind us that the seed that we have, this word, is not only living and active for us, it's living and active for real people, for a real world which is hurting and broken. And so prepare us as we come now to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.